When harpist Sheila Bromberg was asked to play on a late night London studio recording in March 1967, she took the gig reluctantly. She had been working all day and was tired, but didn't want to say no, because in her own words, they would ask someone else next time. Rory Maitland, how are you today and how are you with saying no? Well, Karen, um, yeah, I, I think with saying no, I try my best not to say no if I don't have to. So there's often times I've been in situations where I thought, oh, you know, I'd rather not. But then you find that them times sometimes lead to some of the best experiences. And, mo- and a lot of times for me, no comes from maybe a bit of fear. You know, like, oh, maybe I wouldn't be good at that. Maybe, like, it would have been very easy to say no to this podcast a year ago, you know, when we were putting it together. It would have been very easy to say no to singing in front of 3,000 people in a car park. Both of them things, no, crossed my mind 100%, yeah. but both led to uh, to really good experiences. So, no, I try and try and not to say no as often as possible. Okay, so you're like Sheila in, uh, in that case. Well, I personally was desperately trying to say no on Sunday night to, as you call them, Luke, the sad pints <laughs> that were flowing in Calera House. <laughs> the sad pints. After last week's guests, Eamon O'Hara's Tour de Strand once again showed their dominance and beat my beloved Calera Strand Hill fairly well in the county final. I knew that we had this recording session on Monday and I wanted my voice not to be the full octave lower that it can sometimes get <laughs> on hungover days. That's your real radio voice though. I, I, yeah. <laughs> a bit of radio husk. Oh yeah. Would you notice now that my voice is a little bit down today? Yeah, you I would. actually would, Luke. Yeah, you were. Because I'm hungover to Jesus. So <laughs> <laughs> were, were they sad or happy pints? Oh, they were very happy pints. Were they? Well, I'm glad pints, for you. There were pints of pure joy straight out of the tap. <laughs> I am glad for you. Um, but look, we'll move move on from the county final. We will have more on that topic with Rory later in the show and back to Sheila Bromberg. Because in those days, musicians were never told what the gig would be until they arrived. They had no idea of the music either and so Sheila was going through the notes on the stand in front of her before the session when none other than Paul McCartney arrived behind her and said, now, Luke, I'm going to ask you to do this one in oh. uh, in in a Liverpool accent <laughs> oh. af- after what we all agreed was your incredible Ringo Starr impersonation on the first show of this season. Let's <laughs> remind ourselves of that glorious moment. Have you ever seen Have you ever seen that uh, little Family Guy bit on the Beatles? No, no. Have you seen it? The three lads sitting, uh, George and, and and Paul and John sitting in a room, oh, slaving away, writing music, and Ringo comes running in with a piece of paper. Ah, boys, I wrote a song. I wrote a song. Here we go. And they said, "Oh, that's lovely, Ringo. Right, we'll just put it up here in the fridge." Right, and they just right keep here. going. Right here on the fridge, Ringo. Right, right. here in the fridge. Everyone can see it. <laughs> <laughs> So, was that more Scottish or Welsh, Rory? I'm not sure if it was Northern Irish or if it was... I'm not sure. <laughs> there's a bit of, there's a, certainly a little bit of sarcasm going on here, I think, isn't there? <laughs> just anyway, back to the challenge. I Luke. never claimed that I was good at a Liverpool accent. I just did it for the purposes of enhancing the story I was telling. Well, good man. We're delighted because now you not only enhance the story on episode one, but you're enhancing the story on episode three as well. And what I want you to say right now... You shower of... Five words. What you got on the dust? What? What you got on the dus? What the hell is a dus? I'm not sure. That apparently is what Paul McCartney said to Sheila Bromberg that, that evening in, in Abbey Road. What you, what you got, got on, on the, the dus? The dus is the music stand. What you got on the dus? I don't even, I can't even begin to think about how you'd say that in a Liverpool accent. There's no big vowely words in there. <laughs> well, look, man, here we go. We're going to try it. 
we're going to try it. So, Sheila Bromberg was going through the notes on the stand in front of her when none other than Paul McCartney arrived behind her and said... What you got on the stand? I can't can't work this in my head. Right. That's a really hard line to say in another accent. In fairness, that is a tough one, Luke. You still have to give it a go, though. (laughs) What you got on the... uh, No, it's not. It's not happening. No, it's not happening. Okay, we'll try another one next week, Luke, with more vowels in it, (laughs) (laughs) if you'd prefer... Anyway, what she did have on the dust was the first four bars of She's Leaving Home. Wednesday morning at five. And as she said uh, before she passed away recently, what amazes me is out of all of the music I've ever performed, I'm noted for just those four bars. Mm. Uh, This week's guest, folks, is also an amazing harpist. This gets lost sometimes because he is probably better known as an incredible composer. We can't wait to bring you our chat with Michael Rooney and our first live piece of music of the season. But lads, you'd miss me all around the place. You'd miss the energy, wouldn't you? You would. He He, does does bring a fair buzz to the place. He he does indeed. He travelled to Berlin this weekend, lads, especially to ask the German people a very important question which will be revealed on next week's show. Yes. Um, But look, for now, let's see what he got up to before he left. Talking to your average Joes, a random question he will pose. What he'll ask, one never knows. What's your favourite movie? Savoury or fruity? Do you like a sushi? Oh, it's me, Hall on the... Well, lads, what's the crack? Street. Well, lads, what's the crack? I'm here underneath the spire on O'Connell Street in Dublin, and I'm asking people what their favourite holiday destination is. Here's what people said. I've always wanted to go to Italy, like Rome preferably, but yeah, Italy in general. I go to the Bahamas. Why? Because the water in the Bahamas is like crystal clear and you can also go swimming with pigs. Well, I mean, I've been to Bali, but like, I would love to go back again. For me, it'd be Wexford, the sunny southeast. New York City. Why? For the shopping. Um, Australia. Why Australia? Uh, so I could hop in the back for kangaroo. Uh, I don't know, like Australia or America or something. Why? I don't know, there's just loads of stuff over there. It's Michal on the streets. <laughs> Man, Michal. Because <laughs> right. you can go swimming with pigs. Just so you know, that's the top, funny enough, that's the top thing on my holiday bucket list. I always wanted to go swimming with pigs. Or, or hopping at the back of a kangaroo. No, I've done that. Have you, yeah? No, I have not. <laughs> <laughs> my favourite place I ever was... Um, was Krakow, lads. Uh, no crack, no jokes, just simply history. The history there is unbelievable. There was With, no Krakow in <laughs> Krakow, no? There was no Krakow. And the people are absolutely class, and it's cheap, and it's lovely, and the weather's unbelievable. What's the history there? Well, it has Auschwitz. It's very close to it. So that's the main tour out of there. And then they have, I think it's the Velichka salt mines. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong there, but I think it's the Velichka salt mines where... It's just a class place. Like you walk through these kind of mines and it goes from like the oldest part of the mines to the newest part of the mines. And you're walking underneath the city. Uh, and then they also did the highest indoor base jump from it, from one of the large caverns. Unreal spot. Couldn't recommend it highly enough. Right, just The indoor base jump, did you say? Yeah. What's a base jump? So a base jump is, it stands for, I think, bridge, air, satellite and earth or something like that you jump off a series of different things but it's kind of known for people jumping off buildings and rather than jumping out of a plane with a parachute you jump off a building or a bridge 
or something along them lines. I've got that acronym for base wrong as well. So can somebody please uh, email in and tell me what base stands for? In the yeah, base so jump? if some of our Polish listeners could uh, <laughs> fix the salt mines one and if any of our base jumping listeners could just, because uh, I'm sure we have, we thousands of listeners. So actually, sure do, we have if we have a base, hundreds, we hundreds ha- of thousands, Luke. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If we have a base jumping listener, can they please get in contact? Because I will make sure you're on this show. 100%. <laughs> we can chat about that. How about you? Favourite place to be on a holiday, Kieran? Wow. Um, the last place I was on holiday was Ross and Aula, lads. And job. Oh. It was just, it was a night. It wasn't a holiday. Look, it was a night away. But that, that's just fresh in my mind. It was after the Sligo Live gig and had a busy few weeks and just went up with Sinead for the night to Ross and Aula and just loved it. Um, in terms of a broad, God. I was in Argentina once, and that was pretty cool. Oh, I Buenos imagine. Aires, like, um, what a city. We went to, like, um, La Bombonera, which is the, the home stadium of Boca Juniors. Um, went to see a tango show. You know, all the cliched things. The steak all around the city was unbelievable every night. Um, look, I could go on, but that stands out now as a trip I made once that was just mm. pretty incredible. Speaking of Michal being in Berlin, I've I've been to Berlin and I have to say that's one of my favourite places I've been. And I think if, if you like city breaks, I'd highly recommend that. Um, it's the kind of place where it, it you know, it suits me and what I like to do on a holiday on a city break. I like What's to, that, Luke? I like to just get up, tip out, walk around and, and see a place and that place looks cool. I'm going to go in there. I don't yeah. necessarily have a plan. I just like to tip about, ended up walking past this alley and I, there was loads of fairy lights and really like top tier graffiti by like people like Banksy and stuff down Class. the alley so we walked in there was some weird like there was a deaf museum and like a museum to do with stuff for deaf people and there was all these little arty cinema but down the bottom there was a bar and the bar is not on Google Maps it's not on social media it's, it's, it doesn't have a name you're not allowed to take pictures in there so like you'd never find it unless you stumbled across it like we did very but, good but up behind the bar you know, like you'd see a hunting trophy and it's like a deer's head or whatever. But up behind the bar, there was like an armadillo, but it was his arse. Just <laughs> hanging up behind the bar. It was like his head. It's like they'd put it the wrong way around. I'd say if you went around on the other side of the wall, some other room, maybe there was yeah, his head. Yeah, out the other side. Know. But just up behind the bar, yeah, an armadillo's arse hanging on the wall. Very good. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> there you go, Luke. I am struggling to segue that into Michael Rooney. <laughs> I really am. But, uh, but Michael, of course, is this week's guest. As mentioned earlier, folks, we had a brilliant chat with him. Michael played some music with us. Uh, let's see how that went. This week's guest is a prolific composer and widely regarded as one of the foremost players of the Irish traditional harp. He was awarded the honour of T.G. Cahar Composer of the Year in 2017. And in my personal opinion, the music he writes is incredibly melodic, moving and fun to play. Michael Rooney, you are welcome to In the Lamplight. Thank you very much, Karen. Um, so, where did the music come from? Where, where did it all start for you? Uh, it would have started, uh, I was born in 1974 and um, I suppose without getting too more, but my mother would have passed away when I was three and um, and I, I, my dad was a school teacher and at that stage he had to go and work and uh, so he would have left me at home in the bed um, with a bit of white bread and marmalade and, uh, and wow. a tin whistle and uh, the neighbours would have called in every so often. At that stage you could do that, you know, I've been told. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, I think I was blown into it for a couple of weeks before, I, uh, you know, singing into the whistle before for a couple of weeks before I, I knew that you were meant to blow into it. So, <laughs> and um, 
it gets worse from there. My dad got me into a marching band when I was about four. Um, again, maybe just to get me out of the house. I'm not sure, but I was walking up and down, singing into a whistle, in a marching band. Uh, so that's that's the that's the <laughs> that's where it comes from. It's and it's all it's all true. But yeah, so I'm from Scotland County, Monaghan. But uh, I would have, I suppose, started learning the whistle when I was four, and then I would have moved on to fiddle. And piano and concertina and different instruments. I would have done a lot of that, um, yeah, as a child. And and f- when you were learning, was it formal lessons or was it picking stuff up yourself or a bit of both or, or how did it work for you? It was completely formal lessons. Like I would remember one evening a week I'd be on the whistle. Um, another evening I'd be on, you know, um, I remember on a Saturday I had concertina lessons, flute lessons and fiddle lessons in the one day. And then when it was about nine or ten when I started the harp, I would travel I could be in Dublin or Belfast um, getting lessons. At that stage, I was just gobbling tunes. I wasn't, it was none of my own own stuff at all. I just was learning, learning, learning. And I loved it, to be honest with you. Um, when I say to others, they think, God, your dad must have pushed you hard. And I don't recall ever being pushed hard, to be honest with you. That's interesting, because obviously at the start, you said your dad put you into the marching band with the whistle, but yeah. sooner sooner rather than later, it was it was driven by you, not by him. Absolutely. Like, I mean, and I have to say, like, you know, and, and I know piano is a, is a key instrument, but I, it wasn't a, a time in my life that I, I'd, I, I had to do the grades. And um, so, uh, and whilst I have enormous respect for all my teachers, uh, you know, and, and including my piano teachers, it was, a, it was a period in my life where that was the one instrument that I felt I was doing against my will. But my dad said to me, you know, my rules, my house. And when you're 17 and you got your piece of paper, you'll thank me someday for that. So, and I have to say, I, I very much would thank him for that because whatever, you know, at that stage, music and the leave insert, I only did once a week. Um, uh, And there's a funny story, you must ask me about that. At another stage, I was in a convent with the girls doing music once a week. But um, <laughs> but the piano got me through a lot of tight corners in, in relation to writing music and and, uh, and organ- understanding um, chordal structures and stuff like that. Right. I only actually heard today, Michael, that you played piano at all. Uh, I was talking to Rory earlier uh, about the interview and what we were going to chat about. And Rory says he remembers you being MD, musical director of shows in school and playing piano and harp and and mixing and matching between the two. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, but I'm not a piano player at all, really. You know, I'm sort of, I mean, I enjoy it, but um, it's very frustrating for me as well because I can sit down and and do things in a harp and I just cannot replicate it on, on the piano. I just don't have the confidence or the dexterity or whatever it is that unknown that, um, but I enjoy playing, but I just, it's, it's not for me. And do you think that's because of the way you learnt it, that you learnt differently to how you learnt the harp? I mean, if you learnt through the grades, I'm guessing you didn't learn the harp that way. You, no. you would learn the harp just learning yeah. tunes by ears, yeah. I'm guessing. Like I had brilliant teachers. I mean, I had brilliant piano teachers and I can't but praise them. They were great and they were very, very patient with me because they knew that I was massive into music. But, you know, my my piano teaching was, was all through set works and... Um, but I would have spent the rest of the evening um, messing around on a piano at home. My dad would have to come in and say, look, can you just focus on your uh, set works and, or whatever they were? And I just, I just learned them off by heart. Um, and if I made a mistake, I had no idea where it was, to be honest with you. So maybe had I, um, had I had someone who inspired me from the point of view of just, you know, obviously my young lad goes to you, Karen, I'll just say it out there. And, and the reason he's going to you, to be honest with you, is just to get a love of playing music that he wants to play mm. you know and he's sitting there and he's playing for his buddies and he's you know 
you know, <laughs> he was at a workshop yesterday and he was asked to introduce himself and everybody there um, talked about their, um, I'm such and such and my teacher is. So um, June and I were standing there and Owen said, my name is Owen, no surname at all. <laughs> I play harp, flute and piano and my teacher is, is Kieran Quinn. You got a man on. That was it. No mention of mom. No mention of dad. My teacher's Karen Quinn. That was it. So, so uh, yeah. well, Owen is a pleasure to teach. His music coming out of his ears and his bones and every part of him. And uh, yeah, it's great to hear he's 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 enjoying it. Yeah, he loves it. Um, okay, so going back to going back to your childhood, Michael, then and and learning these tunes was 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 tra- traditional Irish music was was that a big love for you, or, or was or was that the only thing around, or how did you feel about it at the time? The only thing that was around was um, traditional music and 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 J and GAA. Um, I was obsessed with both, and oftentimes the two clashed and it was a really tough time for me actually because musically I was playing in bands and stuff like that and when I mean bands I mean Kelly bands and stuff like that and and the hall was beside the pitch so I'd be out in the middle of the football pitch you know and I was massive into football and I'd be called off the pitch to go into music lessons and I was over back onto the pitch and that became a problem for me and, and a serious so I suppose your question was, look, a trad was always listened to at that stage, like say from the age of seven to 12. Um, but I suppose at the age of 10 or 11, I was born in a very, very, I feel, opportune time for the harp because um, in 1992, and I'm sort of jumping forward a bit, when mm. I was 17, it was the bicentennial um, anniversary of the Belfast Harp Festival. So when I was sitting my leading search, I was literally traveling the world uh, playing music with in the Belfast Harp Orchestra of 26 women and, and, and one man uh, or one 17 year old uh, man that, and myself and uh, we were traveling the world um, with the chieftains um, recording in the Barbican playing in Carnegie all these places that I had never heard of in my life so I suppose from the age of 12 to 17 I became fixated like I suppose like any young lad I was listening to the radio an awful lot you know I was listening to Atlantic two two five two. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I remember it well. And, um, yeah, 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 yeah. So I'd be listening to all of that sort of stuff, and I think that def- definitely played a part um, in what was going on in my head. But I never wrote a tune until it was about twenty one. Right. Okay. Okay. Just going back to the tr- the trips around the world. Yeah. yeah. And that sounds amazing. That was, so that was just an opportunity given to yeah. you because you were uh, 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 as you, uh, like a, a, yeah. a, a pretty damn good harp player well, for I, that age and you were selected for this orchestra. Is that how it happened? Or Well, it's hard. Like, I was massive into flag competitions. Um, so from mid, maybe age of 10 or 11, I was winning a lot of these competitions on, on Constantina and harp. Um, and whilst everybody knew me as a Constantina player, nobody knew that I played the harp. I was too embarrassed to be honest with you. Um, it was a. Uh, and why is that? Is the female, harp a female? Is it? Ah, oh, right. Jesus, yeah. Okay. Big time. Still is. Like to be honest with you, I know there's, well, there's lots more fellas playing, but at that stage when you were in 1985, like we're talking, girls with long hair and you know flowing dresses and singing and 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 that's just I was appalled. Okay. Um, at that, so I, that might have that, that didn't go quite with the GA. It did not player so, image. So, I'm guessing. No. Yeah. But at 15, I joined the Belfast Harp Orchestra, um, and that was amazing because genuinely it was amazing. We were down in um, the Ulster Folk and Transport um, Museum in Belfast, outside, um, just outside Belfast, where we rehearse a lot of weekends, and at that stage. I was loving it. Like there was 26 uh, harp players there and um, we'd all get to stay there at the weekend. So the social life was brilliant and yeah. um, it was really good. And at that stage, 
1990 to 1992, I was more than proud to say I played the harp because I was literally, we were gigging like as 26 piece, you know, we remember we went over to Milwaukee, um, Irish Fest. And I do remember that was an amazing experience for me. You know, it was my first time abroad, you know, that, at that sort of stuff. And we were in France every summer playing at different festivals. You mentioned Carnegie there mm. and Milwaukee. And yeah. was there ever a place you walked into and you just thought, Jesus, like being from Monaghan and being from Ireland yeah. and getting these, was there a place where you just went, oh my God. Well, we got an awful shock when we, um, I have to say, um, when we got to, so we flew in and it was the, it was Paddy's Day, 1992 uh, and it was terrible weather in the States and um, we, blew, we, we flew in uh, to Boston and we were meant to play the gig with the Chieftains there and the Chieftains couldn't turn up because their transport, basically, they couldn't fly in so we ended up having to do the concert ourselves and uh, in, in, the, in, in the Kennedy Centre in, in Boston. Oh, wow. Sorry, Boston Symphony Hall or wherever it was and I just remember we only had one half of a programme prepared uh, but then you had to do a full show and then that was, that was like, I remember that as being pressure. And, and, and honestly, I remember some particular members getting nosebleeds with just distress at that. And it was my first time to realise, Jesus, this isn't about me. And there was shake. I don't know if you've ever felt when you've no power in your legs and your arms and you just think you can't play. Yeah. We were all at that stage. Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we flew over and we, we didn't even fly. We drove overnight to, to Washington uh, from Boston. And the following night we met up the Chieftains and then we... Um, we played uh, the Kennedy Centre that night and then the following night, which was Paddy's night, uh, we played in, in Carnegie Hall. And I just remember the, the bus stopped across the road and we all 26 Harpers had to, you know, take the lights and walk across uh, <laughs> walk across the street to get into the place. And um, I didn't pass any heat in it, to be honest with you. I was more excited about the fact I was staying in a hotel and that I had plans to, to, to see New York Um as a 17 year old afterwards, you know, with the gang was, we were, we were going to take a, a yellow cab and, and just do a trip around Imagine. Manhattan. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that was, that was, that was, yeah. And, and, and to be honest with you, like they were brilliant times, absolutely brilliant times, but musically, um, my teacher was Janet Harbison and she was a phenomenal harp player and harp is a brilliant arranger. And I would say that I learned an awful lot either consciously through the arrangements she had or else subconsciously listened to what she was doing. And at that stage as well, I also was a massive fan of Bill Whelan, um, and Michal Asulwan. They were, okay. that's where I was coming from. That's now, and also it's, barbershop singing believe it or not and also gospel and there was a group called boys to men in in in, in america yeah although we've come to the end of the road you know that song mm, mm, the mm. end <laughs> of the road yeah, i do so i would have been listening to all of those harmonies like and, and my, the friends in college were thinking what are you what are you listening to <laughs> <laughs> so but i was obsessed with the harmonies and then i was lucky enough to to, to join a riverdance sort of spin-off show in which there was a gospel choir there and i would have spent three months hanging out with those guys so and still hadn't written a piece yet. But yeah, it was a bit of bit of something. Amazing, all these influences you had. Yeah. So you you mentioned a few minutes ago you you wrote your first piece at twenty one. Yeah. How did that come about? Very strange. Um, I'd finished college. My dad, uh, you know, and uh, again, my dad, he's a big, big, big part of my life. But again, the rule was, you know, you go to you go to college. You know, you get your piece of paper there, and then your life's your own. Basically, you know, we've signed off on you. So I was twenty. I'd finished my degree in Belfast. What was the degree in, Michael? Uh, in in ethnomusicology and Celtic studies, which and Kel- I don't think you could call it Irish down in Belfast. It would have been too politically, uh, <laughs> okay. whatever. So it was called Celtic studies, but it was Irish basically. And uh, I'll never forget that either um, because 
I did it because I loved Irish. I was brought up to Irish at home as well a lot. A lot of what was spoken. And um, But I remember going to Queen's and I remember joining the Students' Union and when I told them where I was from and that I was studying Irish, there was a an assumption that I was going to join a particular... Um, particular what? Um, Organisation. <laughs> and I couldn't understand because again, and then when I lived in Belfast for a while, I could see where they were coming from. You know, it was part of their identity, the language. And, um, but yeah, uh, I, so basically after 20, I, I, I went on the dole mm. uh, and that was a very conscious decision to be honest with you because uh, I knew at one stage I'd be paying uh, taxes for the rest of my life. So I was more <laughs> than willing <laughs> and I, I, I and I actually mean that you know I was doing a tiny bit of music teaching, but I'd um, yeah I'd, I'd I'd head off to the dole office either Wednesday or Thursday morning and get me seventy euro or seventy pounds and uh, that was great and uh, and that kept me going and I was off the books as I say with dad um but so I was actually um, I was living with three sisters um because they were in the orchestra two of the sisters were in the orchestra there's um. You might know Pranny Rattigan and uh, Catherine Rattigan and uh, they have a sister, Margaret Rattigan. And um, Margaret at the time was living in Chapel Street and Pranny's living out in Streetia. And Catherine was living in um, in Donegal Town. She's now out in Switzerland. And I was staying between the three houses, just chilling out. Um, there was the, an amazing musical scene in Donegal that, that at the time in Ballyshannon. Um, and I mean musicals, that sort of stuff. And I was sort of just hanging out, chilling out, watching this stuff. But one stage, I just, um, Catherine turned around to me. She said, you know, would you be interested in writing a suite of music? And um, and I said, yeah. And I, I didn't, I'm not joking. I didn't know what a suite of music was, to be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then I, I, I did that. And uh, I, I wrote most of that um, in um, in Chapel Street, up just beside the Garda station. Um, and I wrote some of it in, in Outen Street as well. And I have to say, it was just like an outpouring stuff. I I flew through that. Um, it was called a famine suite, and I wrote I wrote that in nineteen ninety six. That was my first piece. Okay, uh, Catherine was on the show with us last year. Actually, she was on our St Patrick's Day special. Um, yeah, lovely, lovely lady, lovely player, and that's interesting. She had that influence on you, Michael, back then. Yeah, she was great. Like we played in a group called Harper's Bazaar, and um, and sure we travelled all over Europe, and I'm sure that was mad. Like there was seven or eight of us, and um, that was just fantastic crack. You know, you'd be busking for your for your food. Basically, we we sort of barely got by, and you'd be. I just remember us in Switzerland. We were out busking and hoping for money, and somebody dropped off pizza, and we're like, yeah. don't want pizza. But uh, so, but yes, we were sort of that. that that was good as well, yeah. Yeah, so you've, you, I mean, we'll get back because I really want to talk to you about your composing and, and how you compose and, and obviously it developed a lot from 1996 when you said you wrote your first piece. Um, but where did the teaching come out of? Because you're a you're the vice principal um, principal of a school here in Sligo. Where, how did that happen or where did that come out of? Because it sounds like you're on this massive musical road yeah. and you're travelling the world and you're travelling around Europe and you're writing music. Well, I suppose at that age, like I would have spent a lot, a lot of time playing music and I, f- I realised for me, I went from playing football, I gave up football straight away at, at 18 uh, or 17 even um, and I put on weight very quickly and I just realised the life of the musician, as much as I was loving it, it wasn't for me from the point of view, it just wasn't a sustainable, um, it certainly wasn't sustainable for me at all. And so I made a decision in, in 19, I forget what year, I, but I think I was 26 and mm. I made the decision to go back to, or maybe actually, sorry, I was 23 or four. I made the decision to go to NUIG and get my HDIP. Um, it's strange. My mother is a teacher. My father's a teacher. Um, 
my brothers and sisters, everybody in our family is a teacher and everyone in our family are married to teachers as well. So, wow. um, so every single person in the family um, is a teacher. So I suppose it was always there. I always knew at one stage I'd probably go to it. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's where that came from. Okay. I'll just, we'll get this out, will we? <laughs> Wait, <laughs> off you go, Rory. Michael Rooney was my music teacher. Um, and it's funny actually hearing you speak. I didn't say it earlier on because I didn't feel it was the place, but maybe it is now. From knowing both of you as musical educators, you know, you do a very similar thing, I think. And I think it's something that comes from, well, it might, you, maybe you can clarify for me, but Kieran, you teach by ear, or at least try and give people the skills to play functional music or music that you can pick up and play. Well, Michael, you're kind of the very same. I yeah. remember... One of the, I remember the year you took over, you took over our leaving cert cycle. And the moment I was like, I'm going to click with this guy properly was, we were, I can't remember what we were looking at, but there was music playing. I don't know if we had to transcribe something or do notation. I'm not sure what we were doing. But I remember like I was looking at my book and the music went off and it was, lads, get your heads out of the box for a minute. Close your eyes if you have to listen to the song. Listen, listen to what's going on, what's happening in the background. What instrumentation are we using? Blah, 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 you know? But I had never experienced that before for in any form of teaching, which was like, don't look at the book. You know, there's, a fun, there's an actual thing happening in the room and it's, it's up to you to figure it out. The book, refer to it if you need to. But I find that amazing because I think, Kieran, you're quite the same. And I, is that a thing that because you learned that way, that you want to instill that in people? Or are you just sick of people looking at books? Well, I Michael. don't think you can teach musicality. Um, I think, you know, that you try and, and self and I still feel the same way. I feel that you try and self, um, that you direct someone, like someone who has music ability. And you, you know, it was oozing out of you at that stage. You were a hilarious young lad, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> we must get back to that too, yeah. <laughs> but I just remember, you know, if someone's into something, they just need a bit of self-directed learning and they'll probably learn a lot quicker if they hear something than if they're, they've been taught it. So it's look at... I don't know. I just feel that the the worldly experience that that I had uh, by the time I was in Kula, um, it definitely helped in the classroom situation. I felt that I could deal like with any character. Like, um, I mean, there was a lot of characters, and Rory, you are a character. So, so t- tell us a bit about Rory as a as a as a teenager, Michael. What's what was what was he like in the classroom? You know, rebellious sort of. A, I'd say he's a rebellious sort of nonconformist sort of. Uh, a sort of a character and probably still is. Um oh, maybe a touch. But uh and 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 I um I just remember that I was lucky. Had I been teaching Irish or one of the one of those it mightn't have worked as well. But music is music and it doesn't care. It doesn't matter what sort of a character. If people are into car- you know into music, they're into music. And I'm not sure if it was your year group but there was you and there was some lads into Chinese music and there was different Yeah, yeah it was a bit mad. And um, <laughs> And all you could do was, you know, allow people their space. And there was, you know, there was, I'd say there was a serious amount of characters um, in my music class. But I think I didn't really particularly feel like your teacher. I sort of felt like one of you. hundred percent. But so. I, th- I think that was the only class we got. To, your class was the only class we got to go into that was like that. Yeah. Because it was just, Mr. Rooney loves music. He's going, you're going to feel that often when you go into the classroom. Now you could give out too, like, because there's, there's only a certain level of piss taking someone can take, like, you know. But I mean, for the vast majority, it was lads. And I love this style of giving out. Lads, what are you doing? And just stop and look at you. And then you kind of reassess your own, you know, like, rather than screaming, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing that for? I loved that. And I think we got on really well. Our class actually got on unreal, like, and it was a real 
the real change, I think, for me, going into classrooms like that, I loved it. I suppose that's the thing, I mean, uh, about a good teacher is that they don't always teach you the technicalities of what you're there to learn, but they teach you an attitude towards the subject. Correct. And, you know, you obviously picked up off Michael, his love for music and how it just, you know, it's it's part of Michael. And you spoke earlier on about hanging around with the gospel choir and listening to boys to men and these influences that you wouldn't, you know, that you shouldn't have had growing yeah. up in Monaghan being a traditional harp player, but yeah. yet they became part of you and they're now part of your music. And you probably picked up on, on that, Rory. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I have another great one. Go on. So, <laughs> so myself and a couple of the rocker lads wanted to perform um, at a Christmas thing. And we were all in Michael's class and it was the, the day before or the week before and we were given space to rehearse in the classroom. So it was put down the books, rehearse your stuff for the, for the Christmas. And I remember everyone else got up and someone was playing a tin whistle, maybe someone was playing a banjo, I don't know. And it came round to us and we're setting up a full drum kit. One of the lads plugging in a guitar, turning them right up. And I remember this because it was a prime example of how to kind of talk to young people. He kind of stood back and he goes, now they have their volume up to 10. There's no dampeners on that drum kit at all. Now, most people would have said, now, lads, you have to turn that down. Mike was, no, on you go, lads. You learn in your own time. Trashed around the place. Couldn't hear a single thing. <laughs> Felt unreal, but walked out of the classroom. And I remember Michael was playing lead guitar at the time. Michael Rooney? No, no, uh, sorry, Michael Monaghan, the lad okay. in my class. Okay. That would have been a surprise now. Now he's shredding a league guitar. Yeah. But uh, we left the class, and rather than, I think if, if we had been told to turn it down, by the time we got onto the stage for the Christmas show, we would have whacked it up and just went for it. But walking down, I was like, lads, we need to turn that down. That was fierce loud. You know what I mean? That was over the top loud. And that was a group of kind of grungery rocker lads saying, and it's just from a subtle little thing, which was, they won't turn it down. Even if I tell them to turn it down, they won't. So I'm going to let them learn in their own time. And then sure enough, when we got onto the stage, we still played loud. Now, I remember we still played loud, but it was definitely about yeah. 40 decibels below where it was before. <laughs> there was another time as well. that they, <laughs> a, a different performance. <clears throat> they they formed a group, a non-rock group. Well, okay. it was a different form of rock. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. They were God. called uh, Chicks in Hot Pants. And they sort of <laughs> they were called what? Sorry, Michael, repeat that. Uh, chicks in Hot Pants. Right. There was three of them and um, they did this routine and um, oh God. in the middle of it they stripped and they just whipped. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they were wearing, but by God, uh, they left it all hanging out there. That's all I'll say, but um, it was uh, one of those moments that... Um, did you play Planks de Kuloha in that show? I did, yeah. So um, just for the listeners, previous to me and my band of mates stripping on the stage, people had been treated to world-class harp music by Michael. And it was, fa and I remember people were glued to the stage. There was a lovely air in the room. <laughs> <laughs> and then me and the lads went up with tearaway tracksuit bottoms on and started into this dance. Christ, Chicks and Hot Pants is on YouTube. Check it out, it's going to crack. Oh, excellent, excellent, <laughs> excellent. We'll have, to, we'll have to reference that. Absolutely. Um, great stuff. So going back to the music then, Michael, um, and, and you're composing, right? You wrote your first suite in 96. You've, you've written 13 suites in the last 20 years, including music for Prince Charles, for Queen Elizabeth, for the 1916 centenary celebrations. Some pretty, some pretty serious stuff and, and loads of beautiful music in that. How do you think that developed for you over that time? How, how did you go from someone who'd never written a piece of music at 21 to this prolific and, and hugely regarded composer? 
I, I really don't. I, I don't know. I think that I internalize music very, very deeply, um, genuinely. And I, I know that sounds silly, but I can listen to a chord and it can literally, I don't want to say make you cry, but there's music. Sometimes I just listen to music. Um, that's why I feel I'm so bad at remembering songs. I can't, I don't listen to the words of songs when I'm listening to a song. I'm just listening to the, the background chords. I'm listening to the stuff. So I, I would say I have a very intense um, relationship with chords and I know that sounds silly but I, I really do um, and I would have started off um, writing music based around chordal patterns that I was obsessed with and and I don't know how I got away with that but I did mm. um, The chords aren't copyrighted No <laughs> That's the thing you can, you can copy chords just can't copy melodies Yeah but like I suppose and then I was I mean it's a very organic thing with me there's, there's whereas I'm in the middle of writing quite a a, a lot of music right right now and I'm trying to be a lot more analytical about it so that I can cut the heartbreak in half and just be able to move on with it but uh, I would definitely write from a very emotive point of view from uh, I just have at that stage there was no phone so I just would have been there with pen and paper the whole time when an idea came into my head whereas now I have my voice memos and I just leave the phone running and then every 10 minutes if it's rubbish I delete but um, very, very much. Um, but I have to be honest with you, and and I still don't see myself as a composer. I've always seen myself as a performer, and I would find it very hard to 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 call myself a composer. And that is the hands-on truth. Even though I've written quite a bit of music, I just find it difficult to call myself a composer. Cause Why I'm do you think that is? Not trained in it. Um, I I didn't like. Um, and it's just. I don't feel like I feel like a fraud or anything like that. I'm not saying that, but um, I don't know if you've ever seen the film yesterday. Do you know there was a film came out? Yeah. Um, and I feel a bit like that book in, in, in that film sometimes and that I feel that just the tune has come out and it's just done and I haven't, I don't know where it came from and it's done. And um, and I'd love to be able to talk, talk hypothetically about it and academically about it, but it was just a piece of music. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, so I, I think I've spoken to you this about this before, not on the show, but um, you're very much a man to sit in a room and, and to sit in a room for an hour or two every evening yeah. when you have a piece of music to write and you will stay there yeah. and you will try various things and some will work and some won't. It's not like you go in and say, right, I feel inspired, I'm going to write a melody now. No. It's it's. It's going into the room every evening, no matter what, mm-hmm. do your time. And at some point during that time, something will happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to be honest with you, I've only written one piece in my life that I've ever actually been inspired to go in and write. It was on Christmas Day in 2007. And my best friend, his his brother was 41 at the time and he went in for a routine checkup and didn't um, come out of hospital. He basically passed away on the table. And I just remember on Christmas Day was about four or five weeks later being just so depressed about that. And uh, I sat down at the piano and, and wrote a piece and I had it done in about 10 minutes. Um, and that would never happen usually. And there's been four or five times in my life where I've been able to write a tune in one in one sitting, but usually it takes me two weeks to do it. Okay. And two okay. weeks of pure heartbreak. And um not sleeping properly at night, like, you know, and I mean that at the moment, I, even though I'm working as a deputy principal, I, I spend from maybe eight to 10 or half 10 now, but the brain is still switched on. I'm going to bed with a melody in my head. I'm waking up with the same melody in my head. I'm trying to actually make amendments or j- adjustments in my head as I'm half asleep and I um, could be in the middle of something in an office in school and, and I need to run to my phone to, to throw something in there very quickly and, and then move on with it. 
so it lives with you in in a in a in an uncomfortable way sometimes. And 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 okay, so you say you're not trained in this, but yet you obviously feel strongly about when a melody is right and when it's wrong. It's something that keeps you awake at night. If it's not quite right, it's bugging you. Oh, it is. And so, and so, so how can you analyse, how do you know something is wrong? Yeah, it's the barometer, it's inside me. I just, it's just, it's, it's this clarity that comes and it might be just the changing of one or two notes and suddenly a door opens up and the melody then, and I have this confidence in my head. I'm literally walking through this and I'm going to finish this one and then, and maybe it's positive energy, I'm not sure. But I feel, interestingly, I've done this long enough at this stage that I know that the two weeks that I've got nothing down, I know that my heart is sold. That's that's time in the bank and that the door is going to open at some stage. I don't know if that makes sense. And I have to go through those. If I have to go through that hardship of that time, two weeks of literally sitting around, farting around in a heart, basically trying to come up with something, something just comes out of nowhere. And, and then the door opens and the next thing, it 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 takes off. Yeah. So, so that's how it works for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's reassuring to hear that because I suppose, you know, I'd be a big believer in, you know, there's no such thing as writer's block. Do you know, you should, you, you can say, right, I don't feel like writing or the inspiration isn't coming. But you could say that tonight or a yeah. Tuesday evening, you're at home in November and you're, right, this isn't happening tonight. I'm going to go watch telly instead. Absolutely. But you say, I'm, no, I'm actually going to fight through this and keep going and work through whatever is blocking me because this is time in the bank and it's going to pay off at some stage in the future. Yeah. and But ultimately, like I know in my heart of heart that even though I get through a tune and I, if it's not right, I just know it's not right. Um, and, and whilst it's sufficient, it's not just right. Yeah. And, and I won't ever, ever, ever release it. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. Well, look, thankfully for yourself, Michael, and for all of us, I mean, who listen to your music, you've got many tunes right over the years. And uh, we're going to play one now. Um, uh, would you like to tell us a bit about this tune? Yeah, this was one of those tunes that I was sitting around and uh, it just came very, very quickly. I was sort of going... Was that sort of, you know, messing around and I was like, you know... And then suddenly it sort of, it just happened. Um, uh, so, so Colin Critchra, but I did deliberate, deliberately write it for a, a friend of mine. Her name is Siobhan and um, very, very humble sort of a person who does brilliant work. Um, she's based in Music Generation Leash and um, very, very timid uh, personality. Would never put herself forward, but does Trojan work and a lovely hard player. So I actually said to her as part of the thing, I said, I'm going to write a piece for you and you're, you're just going to have to come out and play it and sort of be a diva and it was for her but uh, amazing amazing well this is this is just beautiful and yeah let's do it in your own time Michael okay
That was Michael Rooney's piece on Crutcher, featuring Michael himself on the harp and myself on the keyboard. Such a joy to play that with Michael on the show. Anyway, we had a huge reaction to last week's podcast with Eamon O'Hara, so much so that this week, Rory recommended a trip to the county final to see what all the fuss was about. If your life is feeling grey, like a dull and cloudy day, we can chase your blues away. Rory recommends you something to defend you from the boredom that offends you. Also fix your hairdo. It's Rory Recommends. The County Senior Football Final. That is about as Irish as it gets. It's as Irish as the debate between Barry's Tea and Lion's Tea. It's as Irish as Tato Sandwiches. It's as Irish as getting a clip on the back of the legs from a wooden spoon after you trim the sister's fringe. <laughs> <laughs> Was that your first that haircut, Rory? <laughs> <laughs> that must be where it all started. Um, this one was a fu- like oh yeah sorry I mean I meant to preface this if this is the point now where you're considering turning off the podcast because you never go to GAA games don't you're the people we're recommending it for if you already go on a Sunday stick around and listen to how we got on but if you don't we're recommending this to to you so uh, let's hear a little bit first I suppose of how we got on. Come in, Karen, how are you feeling? Ah, uh, good man. She's um, it's been a long day waiting for this to come around. You know. Uh, I'm, you know, I've had no crack at home all day. I was just uh, hopping around the place. Anyway, we're here now. It's three o'clock. It's half three. We're we're nearly a throw-in. And uh, look, hopefully the lads are ready. Hard to know whether I'm more out of my depth here or jumping off cliffs. What do you reckon? You're out there in the pitch now. It'd be, you know, it's, it's one of the, literally one of the biggest moments here. It's Rory recommends. We'll go to Luke first, I suppose. Luke, the senior football final, how did you find it? Uh, it was a strange one for me. I, I'm there in that bracket of people that you just mentioned that, that don't go to sports. I'm not, it's not that I don't understand sports or, or don't kind of keep my finger somewhat on the pulse of sports. I know what's going on. I just, I don't really engage with it. If, sure. You know, when the Euros were on during the summer there, I watched a load of those games because there was kind of a popular buzz about it and then people were invested in it and I enjoyed that. But in general, I'd never find myself sitting down just casually to watch any kind of sport. Yeah. It's always kind of, I get swept along a little bit, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. which was really, I suppose, what happened, you know, when we went to the game last week because uh, I got swept along with D as part of this. Sure. But yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it. Um, I can imagine I probably would have enjoyed it a lot more if, Colera won because although I didn't go like you know I don't follow GAA Colera is not my home turf it's my dad's home turf sure uh, I've got a lot of family out there but um, I didn't I wasn't necessarily invested in Colera when I went but I suppose by proxy to Kieran and and the people we were there with you become invested in Colera for sure you know um, but I think for me the thing about sporting events and probably the reason I don't watch a lot of sport is so it's supposed to be entertainment and it is entertainment for a lot of people. But for me, I find it weird when I'm watching something for entertainment purposes that can leave me feeling deflated or disappointed afterwards. It's like watching a horror. I don't understand how people enjoy horrors. Like why do <laughs> I want to sit down and relax and watch a movie? I don't want to have this shit scared out of me <laughs> uh, for two hours while I'm watching it. That's that, that just not to me is not a good time. Um, the sport kind of falls into that bracket for me, although I'd rather the sport than the horror movie. Well, speaking of being deflated, leaving the uh, leaving the the pitch, 
Kieran, how did you get on? Oh, well, look, deflated, but also it was a horror movie, lads. <laughs> it really was. Oh, God. Um, I guess you were there beside me, lads. Uh, you saw it. Um, there, was, there was so much excitement beforehand. Uh, Calera had been playing great football all year, and we really thought we were in with a good shout going in there on Sunday. Um, first half was okay. Uh, we had the wind, and we probably didn't score as much as we should have. We had some, we'd, we'd five or six wides that, that could have gone over. Uh, so we went in at halftime a point up, playing okay, really containing toward the strand. They'd only scored three points. Felt right. We, you know, we're still in with a shout here. Uh, but Tour de Strand came out in the second half and pretty much blew us away. Yeah. Um, almost immediately. Do you know, within five or ten minutes, they, they, had a, they had a cushion of seven or eight points. And by then, you know, you knew the game was up. They had the wind. They're a very good defensive side. So it's very hard to claw back a lead from them. Mm. And by the end, I was just w- wishing for the ref to blow it up. It, yeah. it, it was just that feeling of, oh, look, we're not gonna, we're not getting back. This is this is not changing this result. Just put us out of our misery and let us go home. Does it <laughs> yeah. does it give you a different perspective than most of the spectators there? Do you think when you know how those guys on the pitch are actually feeling, like you've been there, does that change how you watch the game a little bit? Do you think a little bit? Yeah, I remember watching um, one of our younger players in the warm up. He's eighteen years old and he's made his big breakthrough onto the team this year. A fella called Donna Flynn. And Donna had a great season um, and I was watching him in the warm-up and just looking at him saying, wow, imagine being 18 again and playing, warming up for a county final. Like these days, they're massive in your life when you're a footballer. They really are. Mm. Um, we never reached many as a club for when I was playing, you know, before, sorry, before when I played, we never reached many county finals. So when we actually got to a county final, it was a huge deal. I played four in my career and each one was just a massive day. And you're, so you're looking at the players and you're feeling these lads are experiencing one of the biggest days of their lives so far, you know, and you're trying to take that in. And then you're looking at them afterwards and you're saying, I know exactly how they feel. They're just sitting on the, on the, on the ground, listening to Tour de Strand, lifting the cup, listening to the speeches, um, but just struggling to think how they will ever put on a pair of football boots again. You know, yeah. it, it's, it, that's what it gets to. Hear, I, I just never want to play again. I never want this feeling, so I'm never going to play again. And of course that changes, but uh, mm. in that moment, that's what it feels like. So obviously we can't recommend going to a county final because they're over for a while, but I would seriously recommend going to um, a Gaelic Games event of some sort, be it hurling, be it football. Uh, so we better wrap it up and we wrap it up with our massively complex rating system. Uh, it's a thumbs up system. Luke, a thumbs up or thumbs down from you? It's a thumbs up. Just make sure that you uh, are guaranteed uh, that your team's going to win before you go. That's, <laughs> that's how sport works, surely. <laughs> that's Karen? exactly how sport works. <laughs> what about yourself? Ah, look, they're great occasions. Um, I It's 24 hours later. I feel a bit better about it. Um, you know, I was probably as down as you lads have ever seen me yesterday. Uh, you know, it was, yeah. pretty, it was pretty deflating. And um, But, you know, there's another year. Life goes on. And uh, so, look, what would, what would Irish life be without county finals, Rory, as you said? So, a uh, big thumbs up from me for the Sligo Senior County Final. I really thought this was going to be the week that we get a thumbs down. Look, we'll try it again next week. Anyway, that's the end of Rory Recommends for this week. Great stuff. Well, look, Rory, as we mentioned, life goes on and win or lose, there is another episode of In The Lamplight to get out and we hope you enjoyed this week's show. Don't forget to tune into last week's episode if you missed the chat with Eamon O'Hara and look out for next week's podcast, Two Folks, which will feature Michal live on the streets of Berlin and a chat with one of Sligo's most famous musical sons, Kean Egan. Thanks to Michael Rooney for coming in for the chat and the tune. Thanks to Luke and Rory as always. 
And thanks to you all for listening. Good luck. But thanks to you as well, Kieran. Ah, oh, thanks, Luke. Yeah, you deserve an old oh, pat of back course. at the end Th- of the thanks episode. To you, yeah, Kieran. thanks, Kieran. Well done. Well done, Kieran. Very good. You're just trying to cheer me up because we lost yesterday. <laughs> good luck. Good luck. <laughs>